Hello, it's Jane here. I just thought I would pop in quickly before the start of the episode to say, wow, wasn't that a big shaky earthquake we had the other day? And just wanted to let you know that we're all okay here in Fukushima Prefecture, even though that was very close to the epicenter of the earthquake. At the time that the earthquake happened, I was fast asleep and all of a sudden my phone just went crazy with those alerts that say earthquake earthquake and yeah I jumped out of bed uh, switched on the light and ran up the stairs to my kids room they sleep in a room that's half a flight of stairs up from my room and they were awake and a little bit worried so I just helped my son to change from his very thick winter pajamas that he was too hot in into something a little bit cooler. And I was just tucking him back in when the next earthquake came. And I was really grateful that I was awake and standing up and able to deal with the situation on my feet at that time and be right there with my kids while it happened. It was pretty rough. I was trying to think, how would I explain this to someone who had never experienced this kind of earthquake before? And this might be a little bit more easy to understand if you're from New Zealand, but the way I describe it is like standing on the back of a flat deck truck going over a cattle stop that just goes on and on and on for you know a good couple of minutes that's what it felt like it was so juddery and so sort of intense I don't think we've had one like that before of that magnitude here that was so shuddery and sudden like that even 11 years ago when the earthquake happened it was much more wavy I just remember it being sort of like almost I was surfing and the road was waving towards me, whereas this was something quite different. So when I felt it, I knew oh, this is very close to here. And yeah, my friends in Tokyo were feeling the earthquake a long time after it had already stopped here. And when I went downstairs to see what the story was, I picked up my phone and there was just this huge list of messages from people saying, are you okay? Are you okay? How are things where you are? And I was so grateful for that. And I really want to thank all the people who reached out to me at that time and checked in on me and my family. And in the days afterwards, just a lot of care and positive thoughts were really, really appreciated. We didn't have any damage here in Fukushima, thankfully. Unfortunately, a little bit further north uh, did get quite a lot of damage. And you may have seen the Shinkansen or the bullet train on the TV that had stopped and derailed and could be weeks before that is repaired. But for us here, there was no major damage, but the kids did get a day off school the next day and they were really thrilled to wake up and be told, oh, actually, you don't have to go to school today. And the reasoning behind that was that the city, and I think it was the whole prefecture actually, decided that it was unsafe to send kids to school when they hadn't assessed the situation. So they called it a day off and the kids stayed home while they cleaned up the mess or there may have been broken windows in some schools and things. And 
perhaps the water was supply was often others. So yeah, my kids got to stay home and they were really happy about that. And I was actually really happy to have them near me because our nerves certainly were pretty frazzled for a couple of days afterwards. So I just thought I would jump in at the start of this episode and add this onto the front of this episode with Beth, because we're actually speaking about disaster preparedness and earthquakes and things in this episode. And it's just really weird that this happened just a little bit before it was due to be released. So anyway, let's get on with the show. Hello, you're listening to the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata, a New Zealander living her best life in Fukushima, Japan. I'm a podcast consultant and the creator of Pod Launch with Jane, a system that helps you create your dream podcast without all the drama and hassle, leaving you more free time to do the things you love to do. This show is for people who want to hear stories of women who are doing amazing things here in Japan and across the world. You'll find loads of inspiration for how you can live your best life wherever you are. I'm glad you're here. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata. Today, we have a wonderful episode for you about being prepared for when disaster strikes. So by the time you're listening to this episode, it will be after the anniversary of 3.11 here in Japan, which for me is always a, a time of year to stop and check, am I prepared for any potential disasters that could happen in my neighborhood or when I'm away from home even? So this episode is with Beth Yokohara. She is an Australian who has lived in Japan for 14 years, and she is part of Wanavi Japan, which is a NPO or NGO, <laughs> a nonprofit that helps people to become more prepared for earthquakes and other types of disasters in Japan. They also provide life skills and cultural workshops as well. You can find all the references to Wanavi in the show notes and in particular to the Earthquake Preparedness Help Card, which Beth talks about in the episode, which we would love you to print out and to put into your wallet and have it with you just in case you need one. So as 3.11 has passed by again, and we are now into the 11th year since that massive earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster hit Tohoku in Japan, it really is a time to stop and reflect and to check in with yourself. How's my disaster prevention looking these days? What needs refreshing? Maybe you need to swap your water out with some fresh drinking water or rotate some of your food items. There are so many food items on the market now that have very long use-by dates that could be really great to have in your stock, in your pantry. And please don't do what some of my kohai or younger international community members here in Iwaki do and rely on 7-Eleven for everything because it's across the road. It's not an extension of your kitchen. Right. <laughs> I know that's really great that if you have one that close and you don't have to worry about getting food potentially if you're just a single person. But yeah, I really encourage you to 
make sure you have all your things ready to go. Anyway, this is a super fun episode with Beth, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Hi, Beth. Welcome to the Transformations with Jane podcast. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks, Jane. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Yeah. So this episode has been a very long time coming. I think about three years. We've been talking about having you on the show and then all kinds of things started happening and it didn't work out and blah, blah, blah. And here we are three years later. Finally. I feel like that might be life happening, but we've come together. So that's great. (laughs) Yeah, we've made it. So yes, please introduce yourself. Tell everybody where you're from, where you are and your, your connection with Japan. Okay, so my name's Beth Yokohara. I always try and pronounce it the Japanese way, but now I'm living in Australia, I guess I'm Beth Yokohara. <laughs> right, yeah. So, yeah, I'm an Australian, a British Australian, born in England. I grew up in Australia and then I lived in Japan for 14 years. And then I've sort of cycled all the way around from there and now live back in Adelaide, which is where I'm originally from. So it's been 17 years since I've lived in Adelaide. So it's a big, big journey. (laughs) And certainly coming back to Adelaide, it's it's not the 17 years ago Adelaide I once knew. (laughs) So it's been a big learning curve for me. Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit more about that? Like, what was it like getting back to this place where you originally come from all these years later after you've been in Japan for such a long time? It was weird. (laughs) I mean, I I moved back to Australia and I moved back to Melbourne. And I did that because Adelaide's not a very big place and the diversity is not huge. And I have a Japanese-Australian family. So I really wanted to be able to support both of those cultures And Melbourne has a selection of bilingual schools, primary schools, you know, they're government schools, so it's fantastic. So I decided that we would move to Melbourne and there's lots of connections, you know, with I had family there and it's a really fun place to visit. So the rest of my family always wanted to come and visit. And then I moved to Adelaide. But I guess moving back, you know, it was a huge change that Adelaide and Australia and Melbourne that I knew Mm. was sort of 15 years ago, 17 years ago for Adelaide. It's not the same place. And I would visit, but, you know, being a visitor and being somebody who lives in a place is a really different thing and you don't access the same kinds of resources. So it ended up being this really steep learning curve, Mm. you know, (laughs) and a lot a lot steeper than I thought. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I, I feel you. I can kind of imagine it. I haven't done it as in I haven't moved back to my hometown in New Zealand where I kind of grew up, even though perhaps I might do that one day. It's a beautiful place. I'd love to be able to live there again in the future, maybe. But yes, I'm not sure how that would go. Or yeah, like what, do you miss anything from Japan? Or was there something that really, Everything you sticks in your mind about it, and you miss everything. I think, I think, well, you miss everything. I mean, and the key is to just really, when you're in one place, you enjoy the things of that place, you know. So, when I was in Japan, I would miss this is silly, it's Vegemite, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the bread. Right. Yeah. Actually, I have a brother in law who's a sourdough baker, so I was spoiled for the most delicious bread and then moving to (laughs) Japan it was just 
not mm. at the same standard. You know, so you miss those kinds of things no, and then no, and then bigger no. cultural or family things. But also there are so many amazing things about Japan. And then I've done it the other way around now. I'm in Adelaide, so I'm enjoying the leafy streets and the family and the space. And really there's, compared to Tokyo, there's no people. <laughs> yeah, right. Where are all the people? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, so that's that's mental space. So you just enjoy those things where you are. So I'm learning to do that, I think. Yeah, I love to hear this sort of people who've gone ahead and hear their experiences of what it's like. And in this case, transitioning back to where you're from and what it might be like. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Having a, a year away from Japan last year, or not last year, it's been a year since I came back to Japan from Sweden. But knowing that I would be going back at some point made me really enjoy my time in, in Sweden as a new place. That was very different from going back to yeah. where you came from. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. And and um, I don't know. I mean, I feel kind of like I'm always moving forwards and there is no real going back. You know, the person that I was 15, 17 years ago was not a mum. You know, I was not, yeah. I'm not going to say middle-aged. I was younger. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> it was a different life circumstances and I had different lifestyle, you know, and a different things that I wanted out of life and how I lived in any place that I live is really different and how I interact with it. I don't think I went to very many parks and playgrounds. <laughs> We're not up to where the best swings are and the best slides, no. Well, the, where the monkey bars are, yeah. I didn't know that that was something I would even have to research. Mm. <laughs> but I know now. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's all of those things. And I think also, I mean, I had my children in Japan. Mm-hmm. So my eldest was born in Japan, in Tokyo. And then my second daughter was born in Adelaide, but it was just for a couple of months that we were here because she was a December baby and for support reasons, it made sense for us to, you know, come to Adelaide because flights in December mm. <laughs> are crazy. So, I mean, my children had their baby years and their young years in Japan. Mm-hmm. In my mind, that's where I raised my children, mm-hmm. you know. And so it just, it's such a change mm, of, yeah. of what you do with your life and you build relationships and friendships. And that sort of those yeah. first years yeah. is such a changing time for you. You really have forged strong friendships. Yeah. And I think Adelaide people do that with other Adelaide people. And so moving back, I don't have right. mum friends in the same way, mm. you know, or that that support network. Yeah. My support network is still in Japan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's a good a point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Like same here my strongest connections are with the people I met when my first child was born. Well, that's it, mm. isn't it? Yeah. And so they're that, still that my connections in- now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Those are, those are sort of life connections, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think so. <laughs> so the reason that we're talking today is that, well, by the time this episode comes out, will the anniversary of 3.11 in Japan will have already passed. Yeah. But we're talking together today because of what happened on 3.11. Yes. 
11 years ago now, it will be. Yes. Coming around to that. Last year, the 10th anniversary. That's right. So I have uh, going on 11 year olds. So it's always easy for me to remember exactly how many years it's been since the disaster because my daughter was born in the same year, a little bit after, three months after the disaster, she was born. And I always thank the higher powers or whatever every day that she was not born yet and she did not experience what happened on that day of 311 that she does have any memories of it because it was such a shocking uh, horrible event for everyone but we learned a lot from that uh, experience and we're here to talk about that today so Beth I'd just love to ask what was your experience on that day Well, I, like yourself, I've got a a 10-year-old turning 11 this year. And um, so my daughter was five months old when the big earthquake happens, 246 when it happened. So, you know. She was on the outside. Yeah. Not on the inside. Yeah. Well, we were were actually at an international play group. (laughs) And we just, that, you know, we just all started heading home and it was all people in that local area. So we'd all, you know, we all had these tiny babies in ergos and bjorns and carriers and all that sort of thing. And I just walked in the door, you know, went into the doorway to take cover, had my phone in my hand already and was immediately texting and trying to get through to my husband and couldn't get through. And it was it was a shocking experience. It was so, so scary. And I think we all have this idea that somehow when we become mothers, we, I don't know, innately, magically know how to be a mother and what to do in all of these situations that are presented to us. And this was not the case. I was totally at a loss Mm. and didn't know what to do. So that was my experience. Just, you know, I was texting my friends going, and those were the people that I could get through to first, because that's how we connected through Facebook and social networking services and things like that. Whereas phone calls and all of that stuff couldn't get through. It was That's so right. scary. It was blocked. Everything was blocked and we're yeah. working for <laughs> days. Yeah. And I was on the 14th floor. Apartments was on the 14th floor. Mm. But I after, um, you know, about, what is it? it was at the end of 2011, I came across this advertisement for an earthquake preparedness workshop it was a charity event at Willowbrook School International School in Tokyo and I thought I'm there (laughs) absolutely I have no idea what I'm doing (laughs) I need to know I need to know how to set up my house I need to know what I'm supposed to do during the earthquake after the earthquake what to expect and how to go from here where I'm not feeling really nervous at every truck that goes by you know that rattles a little bit you know Mm. it was quite a lot of anxiety that mm. was built up from that moment. Definitely, yeah. And that that earthquake preparedness workshop was the very first workshop by Wenavi Japan before we were Wenavi. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to that workshop and I was like, everybody needs to know how to do this. This is a community who struggled to get information and access you know, anything in their own language and know what to do. And that's that's terrible, you know. Everybody should have earthquake literacy when you're living in a country like Japan where earthquakes occur. And then you don't have to feel scared. You don't have to feel worried. And you can take 
the correct actions that are going to save your life. And so that's me from that point onwards. I've been with Winavi and we've built up, you know, from that point to a non-profit organisation that does earthquake preparedness across Tokyo, now across Japan. So coming across that uh, workshop has had a huge impact on your life and where your life is going now. <laughs> it was just your jam, right? You, you, you were like, yeah, yes, this is absolutely. it. As, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as someone who was magically prepared on that day just by sheer luck and what happened in New Zealand two weeks before with the Christchurch earthquake yeah. and hearing my family that lives in Christchurch experience. Oh, when an earthquake happens, you can lose your water for two weeks. You can have uh, difficulty accessing food and all of these things. I thought, wow, if an earthquake of that scale, magnitude, destruction can happen in a place like Christchurch where earthquakes don't happen, it didn't happen in Christchurch, right? Nobody would expect to have an earthquake like that there. I thought they can happen here where I live in Japan, even though people believed here in Fukushima that earthquakes don't happen in Fukushima because why would they have built a nuclear power station up the road from us if an earthquake was going to happen in Fukushima? That is what people were saying to me when I was saying, are you prepared for an earthquake? Because look what happened in Christchurch in New Zealand. It was all over the news. People were saying to me, oh, poor New Zealand, are your family okay? And uh, sending, you know, giving me their condolences on a daily basis. And I would say to them, are you prepared? And they would go, what for? You know, <laughs> so it was a very different sort of atmosphere or environment at that time. And I can remember going out and buying all of the boxes of water, the food and something to cook on and gas canisters and thinking, oh my God, this is so tedious. I hate this. But the fact that I had that uh, shocking experience of seeing what happened in New Zealand drove me forward to prepare those things. And two weeks later, I needed those things. Those things became like gold. And on, on the day that it happened, we were and we'd all managed to get home after the earthquake. We were out when it happened. We managed to drive home, and my husband was like, "Oh, I guess I better go and like line up with all the other people at the stores." And I'm like, "Why? We have everything. I'm prepared." And he's like, "Oh, yeah, really? That's nice." And so we just sort of sat there safely in our house, and we didn't need to worry. We had water, we had food, we had everything. And we were okay. And that feeling, that feeling of safety was so valuable at that point is what I have to say. And so even though it's such a pain in the bum to do all of the stuff, right, to get your supplies and figure out what you need, the feeling of being prepared cannot be beat, I have to say. Like, and even now I'm like, whatever happens, we're okay. Well, you know, the funny thing is I think, people feel like it's a little bit insurmountable to be prepared as well. Like it seems really hard, but it's not. It really isn't. If you have all of those things and you can get those things together, then you don't have to worry. And then you, when a disaster happens, it's not a disaster until, you know, people get affected by it. But when the, that happens, then you're able to take the right actions and you're able to feel, you know, really safe. And, and I think that's so important. 
yeah, you will not have to be lining up for water supplies no. and and wasting time trying to get cash out of the bank that's not working and all of these stressful, stressful things. You can avoid all of that just by being prepared. Even your furniture, you know, if you're in your home and you haven't prepared all of your furniture, secured your furniture, positioned your furniture in the best possible way, you know, if an earthquake happens, you'll actually have to watch out for mm, bookshelves yeah, and right. all of those kinds of things. But if you've secured them, then you need to take cover for yourself and you don't have to worry about all of the things that might come falling off on top of you. And that that happened to me, you know, in my house. Actually, um, I shouldn't say this, but my sister came to visit and she's great at organising and she made it look beautiful. Mm. But when it, an earthquake came, everything, you know, it was all vases on shelves and things like that. Right. And all of those things fell down. And that's because we had decorated the house for an Australian environment where we never had earthquakes and never thought about earthquakes. So it wasn't a thing. But shattered glass means that if you are required to or you need to evacuate and you need to make that choice and you don't have shoes on in your house, which is often the case in a Japanese household, it's going to be a lot harder to, you know, to move out of that space if you've got a cross glass and you haven't got any shoes on. You know what I mean? So you, you've got to think about those kinds of things. And there's so many lessons learnt and across all of the earthquakes that happen in Japan. And this is, I find, amazing. Every single earthquake, something else is learnt and implemented and taught to people, mm. you know. And so it means that the next time, the next earthquake, if there's things that happen that causes some kind of damage or hurts people, there's a response to it. And knowing what that is and knowing how to prepare, that's that gap, that information gap, I think, with international residents living in Japan is they don't always have access to that information or know that they're missing that information. Mm. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) I think it wasn't so bad 10 years ago or even sort of like seven or eight years ago. People, it was still fresh in their minds, right, This what had happened. But people who are coming to Japan more recently don't have that in their mind. And I will talk to some of my acquaintances here and I will say, do you have your supplies? And they're like, no, I live next to 7-Eleven. I'm like, you what? (laughs) You don't have drinking water? Um, So yeah, I always give them a bit of a kick up the bum, but yeah, it's it's not in their experience. Yeah. So they, they don't understand just how important it is. Yeah. Mm. It is, it is so important. And I think the other thing that happens, even if you have got all of those, you know, that knowledge when it comes to earthquake preparedness, because Japanese people grow up in Japan and from a very young age, you've got quikwen, you know, daycare, all the way up, they're learning about, you know, learning disaster resilience education and how to take cover and things like that. But it sort of peters off when you become an adult and you mm. become complacent, I think. And it's really important to pull back and not be complacent and just you have those things set up and you roll them over and then you just, you know, come disaster, come earthquake where you you need those things, they'll all be there. Yeah, exactly. So tell us about One Abbey and how it works and how it can help us. Yeah, so, well, that's changed a little bit, I think. Come COVID, which has not worked, has worked in my favour, I think. Um, so Whenever Japan is a non-profit organisation comprised of women of multiple nationalities. And so we came together after the Great East Japan earthquake and we wanted to do something to help 
and support the people of Tohoku, but we all had babies at that time. And so we realised that it wasn't just the people of Tohoku who needed our support, it was international residents that were struggling with a lack of information and being able to access it in their own languages. And then they were seeking information, you know, outside of Japan, which wasn't helping them deal with the situation. So that's what came, that's where the earthquake you know, first earthquake preparedness workshop came from and the one that I attended <laughs> mm. so many years ago. And from there, we've we've just grown. And our focus is really earthquake preparedness and disaster resilience education. But from there, we also do life skills workshops. So that sort of means we do healthcare, demystifying the Japanese healthcare system, which functions really quite differently to the way different, you know, overseas healthcare systems work. And when you don't know how it works until you come across a disaster or a situation where you need it, emergency, and then when you're trying to access it, it's not the time to try and figure it out. You want to know how it works beforehand. (laughs) Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. So, Mm. and then food shopping is another one. Well, food and and, um, that kind of thing. So, um, I don't know about you, but when I used to go shopping and my Japanese, I don't know what your Japanese is like, but my certain written Japanese wasn't that great. So reading the labels was so challenging. And yeah, so we it's sort of, such a mission to get to know all the products in the well, supermarket in Japan. A mission, exactly. And I think <laughs> we've all made that mistake probably when we first get to Japan where you buy a yogurt drink and you pour it in your tea instead of milk. Mm-hmm. so we did a workshop oh so many random things I've bought it's like oh this is not what I was expecting <laughs> even recently diet, yeah. you have dietary mm. needs you've got kids with dietary mm. needs and allergies and things like that but you want to make choices you want to make informed choices so we created a workshop around food where we're teaching people about the Japanese diet Japanese foods you know how it works out on the table and on the plate and um, which is plates in Japan, isn't it? Never plates. Yeah, right. Many, many plates. <laughs> if you've ever been to Japan, you'll know yeah. it's many, many plates. Anyway. <laughs> many plates. Yes. Um, you know, so you want to be able to navigate that and make informed choices. So we have workshops around that. And um, also etiquette, Japanese etiquette and understanding what's going on with your neighbours. With You know, if you work in a business environment, we do Japanese business etiquette. You know, it's sometimes really hard to navigate and it is different. It's a different approach. But there's a lot of aha moments, I think, <laughs> where people go, oh, so that's why that's happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. You mm-hmm. know, so we do a lot of aha moments <laughs> Yeah. in earthquake preparedness, in the food, in the healthcare system. You sort of put it together and you actually realise what's happening and what you're doing. So it's it's a lot of lot of fun workshops, yeah. And are these being held mostly online these days? Ah, so we were live. We were always live, and we did a lot of different workshops, including in we did some fantastic ones in shrines and temples, and made some great connections, which were a lot of work, but really fun and interesting to do. But since COVID, you know, 2020, and I moved to Australia as well. So I was always like, do it online, do it online. Mm. I want to stay Mm. involved. And so it was all of those elements came together and pushed us over into the online sphere. And at the moment, we are 
always online. And that's because there's just keeps having, every time we try and set up a live workshop, it ends up something else happening. <laughs> and so we go back online. And so we just sort of decided rather than, you know, push to go back to live, let's just push mm. to be online mm. for the moment. And so that's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Those it's been happening a lot, right? Oh, we I'm sure it'll be okay by yeah. August. We'll be able to meet in person. Nope. Oh, it'll be okay in October. October's <laughs> gonna be fine. Nope. <laughs> and it's different in Australia and Japan as well. So there's, you know. I was in Victoria in 2020 and I was in six months, you know, of lockdowns, you know, with my children at home learning and things like that. And so everything, it was so important for everybody to learn how to navigate the online world. And Mm -hmm. we had this fantastic opportunity to do so many cultural workshops with an organisation that we had a relationship with and, earthquake preparedness and all sorts of things and it was a steep learning curve at first and then you know it's really comfortable now yeah. so it's great yeah I'm I'm thrilled because I've been working online for 13 years now it turns out I just yeah. checked it the other day when I got my first <laughs> online job teaching English online and so right. it's like finally everybody else is caught up because it used to be a real mission to get people to come on a zoom call and, yeah. and all of these things. But now it's just like, yep, here's my link. Okay. Thanks. See you then. And people show up and people are zooming and it's great because I live in Fukushima as well. Yeah. And, and so now I can be as connected as you can be in Australia with people doing things in Tokyo that I want to be part of, Yeah. but I haven't been able to get to in the past because it's just a bit too far to go. Is, yeah. Yeah, so now I feel much more connected and I'm very happy living here in Fukushima well, I'm, <laughs> and enjoying it, yeah. I'm excited about being able to continue that connection. I mean, Japan is such a huge part of my life and Wenavi as well. So continuing that is is so important. But it also means that our workshops, Earthquake Preparedness, we've been a little bit stuck to the community in Tokyo and it's a big community to be fair, (laughs) it is a very big community and a big international community, but we can go beyond that now. You know, we can can Mm. have workshops with international schools all over Japan or embassies or anything that you would like Mm. and community Mm. groups and universities and all sorts of things, and and we do. So it's really an exciting time, really. Yeah, that's great. I mean, of course, the rest of Japan needs this as much as people in Tokyo do. Yeah, yeah. there's just more of them in Tokyo. We don't all live in, <laughs> not all the international people live in yes, Tokyo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I would have loved to have been able to attend something like that when I arrived in Japan 20 years ago. But, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And that's that's part of the, the danger. That's it. Well, I mean, I can still recommend that you join. I think that even if, I mean, I've done a lot of workshops and I still learn a little bit something new even if it's from other people's experiences but it reminds you of all of the things you've got to do which is important you know but it's also we've had people who have been in Japan in and not in Tokyo that have been in Japan for over 20 years and have gone and joined our workshop and just been like why didn't I do this 20 years ago Mm. I said because we weren't around (laughs) (laughs) well there you go if that's not going to get you in a workshop, I don't know what is. So what's coming up for One Abbey? What can people join? So if we're talking sort of from April onwards this year in 2022. 
Well, we run our workshops through community groups, schools, and things like that. So we have our workshops. We don't have a space Mm -hmm. and we don't organize participants. We ask organizations to do that. And so what we're doing, well, what I'm doing, I should say at the moment is I'm, I work on the school side of things. I'm a primary school teacher background and I still work in Australian schools in Australia, but my focus is on schools. So international schools and preschools and mm-hmm. things like that. And I work with a, a colleague of mine, Yayoi. So we try and get parents, communities through PTAs and things like that to hold personal preparedness, mm-hmm. earthquake preparedness workshops. And then we do professional developments for teachers and staff and educators. And that's sort of twofold. We want them to have their own personal preparedness, but we also want them to be confident in earthquake literacy to be able to teach it and support it within their schools. So we want them to be able to look at their classroom and identify the hazards and the safe places and when they're going on walks and when they're moving around their community to be able to, you know, work work with that and really know what they're doing. And also the conversation with children. You want to have the confidence to mm-hmm. talk about disaster resilience education. And if you don't have earthquake literacy, it's really hard. <laughs> so that's really important. So that's the parents, the mm. staff, and we also work a bit with students. You know, it depends on the ages, obviously. Um, we have resources for the younger kids. We have kamishibai. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Kamishibai, the Japanese traditional storytelling on cards, which is super fun. Mm-hmm. And we had a great opportunity to work with Shizuoka University, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Fuji, translating a fantastic Kamishibai resource, teaching those early childhood, early primary about earthquake preparedness and tsunami. So those kinds of resources and, of course, songs mm-hmm. and dances, you know. Mm-hmm. You've got to do cartoons. There's nothing yep. nothing done in <laughs> with about a bit of manga yeah yeah yep. or a fluffy person dressed up it wasn't those giant fluffy yeah. we don't do on. that <laughs> we don't any fluffy suits <laughs> maybe if you provide the fluffy suit I don't know. <laughs> what are they called the yudu kiara those, yeah. um, those people who have to who dress up and those yeah wow mm-hmm. it used to terrify my daughters <laughs> oh really they didn't like them my kids loved them and i thought why are you no, one terrified? of them yeah. One of them loved them. The other one was terrified. Mm. It was, and they, and especially that, you know, the blue dog, the Fuji television blue dog. Okay. Horrified. It was just, it, mm. just she would run screaming. It was um, quite, wasn't funny. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Life in Japan. Yes. yes. One of those aru arus of Japan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, right. Wow. So if you could give one or two of your top tips, that listeners could take away today and do something, what would you say to them? Now, I know that's kind of putting, no. putting you on the spot there, but like one or two, your top tips. So Wenavi has a website and mm-hmm. on our website, we have resources and under resources, we've developed help cards. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a disaster help card and there's ones also related to food and other things, but the download the free printable disaster help card and you know, print it out, make sure everybody in your family has a copy, read through it. There's spaces for personal information. There's Japanese 
critical Japanese for, you know, disaster-related Japanese. So things like how to, you know, it says evacuate and also the kanji that to be able to read the news and all of those kinds of things. Is There's the NHK radio and all sorts of things. I can't list it enough. You have to come to a workshop. <laughs> but <laughs> print that out. Print it out and have it in your wallet. It's, you know, origami style. You can fold it up. Mm into a credit card's wow. size, goes in your wallet, and it's you have that information right there ready for you. I think people rely on their phones and think, my phone has a torch, I can get information, I can call people, I can do this, my phone is going to be my resource when an earthquake happens. But you don't know when an earthquake is going to happen and it's almost guaranteed that it's going to be on 5% battery <laughs> <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day. And you're not going to be carrying a massive lithium battery to charge your phone at that time. And you don't know when it's going to happen. So having your personal details, like your family's phone numbers. Yes. Like what is your phone number of my husband? I have no idea. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I can tell you the phone numbers of my friends when I was in primary yeah. school and high yeah. school. I still remember yeah. them. But I can't tell you other right now what my parents' phone number is. <laughs> yeah, or no idea. My, I didn't know my husband's phone number. I learned that, mm. though, um, pretty soon afterwards. Either memorise them or just have them on a piece of paper and international people contact your embassy and have yourself registered at your embassy. So there will be someone finding you and trying to find out information about you and supporting you. Yes. Those are my two tips. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that one about the embassy. Yeah, I had someone from the New Zealand embassy calling me and saying, you're in Fukushima. Are you okay? What can we do? Do you need help? Would you need us to find something out for you? And I was like, well, we, we want to leave Fukushima, but we don't know if the roads are open. And they're like, okay, we'll see what we can find out. And they got in contact with me again. So be aware that your embassy want to be checking up on you so make it easy for them make sure you're updated your information that it's up to date that you have all your family yeah. registered on there so they can easily check you off okay she's fine great next who do we need to get in contact with because it must be a hell of a job contacting people right yes it is I imagine it is I mean I think look there's just so many top tips that I could give you but the embassy one I don't know. And downloading the help card, so much of the information that we do in our workshops mm -hmm. is in that help card. And I cannot sing its praises enough. It is so useful to have. So even if you don't contact your school or your workplace or organise it privately mm -hmm. to do a workshop with us, have that, you know, have those details so that you know what you can do and you can at least find out information. And I think the big thing about earthquakes is that, I mean, you've talked about having all of that stuff in your home prepared, and that's really important. Mm, yeah. You just don't know where you're going to be when an earthquake happens. So being able to identify the things that are supports and the things that are, you know, hazards mm, yeah. along your way are really important. You know, and there's so many of them. There are support stations, designated support stations, you know, in you're talking about driving in Tokyo, you know, the Kanana mm -hmm. or Loop 7 in the central mm. part of Tokyo, it's a, it's a road, ring road around at Tokyo, it's shut down in an earthquake. So your car is mm. not going to transport you anywhere. You're not able to drive. 
So you need to, you know, pull your car over and you need to take have an alternative mm. route. Mm. And you need to know what that route is. You know, you need to have a map in your brain of Japan, you know, mm. so that you can look at a map and go, where's that X? Is that near me? Mm, 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 mm. Is that tsunami near me? Should I do something? So those kinds of things are so important. Yeah, I can imagine. I think I downloaded a map of Japan mm. <laughs> pretty quickly mm-hmm. and I started just interacting with it, going, okay, my food is from here. I bought this from here. Mm. This is where these different parts mm. are. And, you know, you, you buy food all the time, so you're interacting with the map and you actually can then remember where things yeah, are where different prefectures are like oh these tomatoes came from kumamoto okay where's that oh that's in kyushu oh that's exactly. at the end of japan right oh my melons from hokkaido you, where's if that you, right if you yeah. don't speak japanese and even mm. even if you do in a panicked situation it's so hard to hear and understand oh, what's yeah. being said mm. sometimes they use those big loud speakers and you know look even if it was in english i'd, I'd be hard pressed to understand what they were saying so if you look use the visuals there's visuals on the television and all sorts of places in japan they love visuals and that works in everybody's favor so if you recognize the map of japan and all of the different parts you can get information really quickly from that lots Mm. of information yeah i have to say it's definitely improved in the 10 years Uh, we had a tsunami warning here recently when the tonga under undersea volcano exploded and there was a tsunami that actually arrived in our city and i was just just noticing oh wow look they've got it in easy to read hiragana on the tv nigete yes tsunami nigete instead of flimmin kanji difficult to read hinan what the hell does that mean um words that they had on the tv 10 years ago they did and they also don't i don't think they used Nigete, actually. I think there was an introduction after March 11th because I don't think they used such a strong word and then they regretted it. And this time they used it. Yeah. And they also had an English word as well on the same screen. Yeah, they had Nigete and they had something in English. And I was like, oh, look at that. That's excellent. That's very much more easy to understand than 10 years ago when I was looking at the TV going, what? It's very true. Mm, Yeah. And Whenever Japan was born from bridging an information gap mm. and bridging mm. all of those kinds of, you know, connecting those different things that weren't available in English. But mm. it is. It's a, it's amazing. Ten years on, there's a lot of apps available. That The yes. Yurekuru app is back, in case you mm-hmm. didn't know. Uh, oh. So the Yurekuru <laughs> app is the, you know, the, the app with the catfish that, um gives you earthquake warnings and you can set it to your zone. Oh, right, yes. Mm. So if you have a, if you don't have a Japanese phone and obviously people have SIM cards these days and things like that, mm. it's the earthquake warnings and things like that aren't built into your phone, so you need to download apps. But there's a whole range of different apps that weren't available mm. 10 years ago. There just wasn't that. Even NHK has a bilingual app, Yep. you know, yep. all these mm. kinds of things. Even Google Translate's pretty magical. Yep. Yeah, I have a um, Yahoo Borsai app on mine and that tells yep. me all sorts of things all the time from volcanoes exploding to missiles being shot at Japan, <laughs> like all sorts of things, right? Great things. But <laughs> yeah. And uh, also my city has a mailing system that you can, and I imagine just about every other city in Japan has one too, you can sign up for to get 
the latest city, like local information from your city about all kinds of things, whether it's flooding or it's oh, yeah. um, all sorts of stuff that happens throughout the year in Japan, natural disasters. And if you have Gmail, the excellent thing is that it will translate it for you when it arrives in your inbox into a kind of English that's mostly understandable. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I found those emails to be really interesting but also very overwhelming so you need to make sure you check which ones you do want to get yeah but it will tell you okay we're going into mumbo now which is the man and boshi which is what we're having for covid at the moment so it's not a state of emergency it's like a pre state of emergency it's called mumbo so oh, okay. um, your city will send you one of those saying from Monday, it's mumbo and there's, you know, no alcohol in the, in the restaurants oh, anymore or whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know. So there's all sorts of things you can sign up for and your local city website is generally where you'll find that. It is very dependent on your city, though. There is a, mm. a vast array of resources that are available and some places just have a lot more and then other places have a lot less. I mean, in Tokyo, Minato-ku is the one number one probably ward that has the most number of resources that you can I mean there's the Minato Ku app so even if you don't live in that area you can still get information about mm. Japan and about that about Tokyo and things like that so there's lots and lots of resources that I think trying to navigate and find out what you have available to you is is still hard mm. especially if you don't have any level of Japanese you're yeah. you know mm. you're just doing regular survival things and trying to not buy yogurt drink yeah. <laughs> to put in your tea <laughs> or yeah eggs that aren't like onsen tamago or something right yeah no just... i want to buy onsen tamago <laughs> there you go that's something i miss <laughs> no onsen tamago mm. yeah well i tell you what you don't get them in australia that's no for sure. right i don't think those are in the store that's for certain yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and just getting us a little bit excited about something that can be, people think might be tedious or boring or I'll do it later. No, let's just go and download that thing now. We'll put a link in the show notes. What we have to do is click the show notes, click the link, go over, download it, print it out, get that in your wallet. Absolutely. And um, yeah, start ticking things off. I mean, you're most welcome to contact us we freely answer questions, you know, we're, we're very happy to do that. And if you want to organise a workshop through your community group or workplace or school or whichever one it is, we're very happy to do that. And we're happy to talk to different people and share different information. I can't say that I don't recommend that the number one thing to do is our workshop so you can navigate all of that mm, stuff mm, mm. and have an opportunity to ask all of those questions. But minimum, definitely disaster help card and that's going to get you you know a long way along to being prepared yeah and thank you so much for inviting me that's <laughs> fun. that's great and you know, it was so lovely to talk to you after all this time of <laughs> it not working out to have you on the show but it has worked out and yeah. just in time for the end of march as well so thanks yes. so much for coming on the show today beth and keep in touch thank you so much jane appreciate it so that was the episode with Beth Yokohara. I really loved how she's so passionate about being prepared for emergencies in Japan. And you just never know when the next one's coming or what it might look like. It could be a massive typhoon. It could be flooding. It could be 
volcano erupting, earthquakes, you name it. Japan has it all in this respect. And I remember one typhoon we had a couple of years ago now that turned our city in and well, it destroyed a huge chunk of our city through flooding, not through the wind, but through the flooding and just the amount of rain that fell. And it took months and months and months for it to be cleaned up. So even just having an idea of where the disaster zones are or where things have happened in the past in your city, where you live, what could happen around you, and also what could happen while you're out and about. Do you have things in your car that could be useful if you can't get home, especially if there's snow, for example, or there's been an earthquake and the road is destroyed. That was one thing that happened more than 10 years ago was roads were disrupted and it was hard to drive anywhere. What if you can't get home and you have to walk and you've only got high heels? Maybe it's good to have a pair of walking shoes, all of these kinds of situations. It's really good to think about. And as we mentioned in the episode, having all of that prepared means you can kind of relax and just know that you'll probably be okay because you've done the preparation. So I hope you enjoy our episode. Please reach out to Beth and say hi to Wanavi on Instagram. They're Wanavi Japan 2011. Those are the numbers. And say hi, say heard you on the podcast. She'd love to hear from you. And she'd love to hear that you've downloaded the Earthquake Preparedness Help Card. I think that would be very useful. And she said, make sure you down uh, when you print it, that you print it double-sided because it's meant to be one sheet of A4 paper that you then fold up nicely to fit inside your wallet. You don't want it to be two sheets of paper. So that's a, a clever hint there as well. So that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening as always. That's all for now. Bye-bye.